If you're wondering how to navigate difficult relationships, communicate more skillfully, regulate your nervous system in the midst of conflict, and set fierce boundaries that heal and empower, you are in the right place. You belong, right here where you already are. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy, and I invite you to grab a cup of tea and your favorite blanket and rest as you join me on this journey home to yourself. Welcome back to the Welcome You podcast. Today we are going to be exploring the signs of emotional abuse and this tendency that we have to blame ourselves and to kind of get small in the face of emotional abuse and relational dynamics that question our sense of belonging and make us kind of feel like we have to shrink ourselves or compromise who we are or even just be an entirely different persona in order to belong or to get accepted in a relationship. I'll be offering you some practices that invite you to reclaim yourself and ways that you can step out of blaming and self-judgment even when the world around you doesn't understand this way that you are kind of taking full liberty to really reclaim yourself and to be the fullest version of yourself that you are. Before I blocked communication with my ex-husband, he texted and emailed me multiple times a day, blaming me for his unhappiness and anger. Eight years after our divorce, these messages kind of still come even in response to simple logistical questions like, can you pick your daughter up from school? His constant harassment and the way he jabs at my abandonment wounds invade my thoughts all the time and keep me awake at night. And his accusations sometimes even make me short-tempered with my daughter, which really breaks my heart because all I've ever wanted was to be this mother that I didn't get to have. In his communications, he threatens to leave her or hurt himself. He claims that his life is worthless and that it's all my fault. And these messages have been so consistent lately that I find myself doubting my own experience and wondering if he is right, if I really am the cause of his suffering and his unhappiness, and if I'm the problem in the relationship. This is a red flag. This is a warning sign for me. When I notice these thoughts, I stop and check myself because one of the warning signs of emotional abuse is this feeling that you're the one to blame for the conflict and doubting your own experience, saying, you know, am I the narcissist? Am I a control freak? Am I manipulating this situation to get what I really want, even though I don't realize I'm doing it? This actually comes from this technique that is called gaslighting. And I never really understood what gaslighting was. I would hear the term, I would see little videos on TikTok or YouTube and try to understand this this tactic. It's really subtle. So gaslighting is like this subtle way of manipulating you where you feel like your feelings or your experience is invalid. 
And you start to believe that you're the one with your belief system and your actions, that you're the one causing the problem. My ex's behavior is exactly this. And when I step back and I actually look at the evidence from an objective kind of witness perspective, I can really see the way that he shifts the blame back to me in order to avoid responsibility. And this actually comes from a place of him wanting to really protect himself because he can't look at, you know, his own discomfort. And so by making me question my reality, he keeps me locked in this cycle of defensiveness and codependency as if, you know, if he can make me feel as scared and alone as he is, then he will finally feel understood. He keeps me trapped here kind of as a scapegoat so that he can place the blame on someone other than himself. Because if he looks at his own participation and his own actions, it's going to be probably too overwhelming and too painful for him to even be present with what he's done and how he's acted because it's been so emotionally hostile. So it's interesting, this technique of gaslighting, because I've, I've known this about our dynamic for a long time. And I've also known that as someone who grew up kind of taking care of others' emotions in my family by being small, by not having needs, by doing it all myself, by, you know, molding myself to fit into whatever space was available for me. I, you know, learned that by setting my own emotions and feelings aside and prioritizing the emotions of others, that I could find some belonging and some acceptance. And that really became my role in the family. And in our kind of modern day language, we might call it, you know, an empath and the narcissist dynamic, or even just, you know, having this kind of hypersensitivity to what others are feeling that I learned by tracking the emotions of what was going on around me because I needed to be ready for when that situation became volatile so that I could get to safety. So I know this about myself. I know that I have this tendency to enable even uh, in this way that I care for other people's emotional well-being before I care for my own. And this is actually why I married this person in the first place, because he had this severe cyclical depression. And when he would sink into an episode, I was able to make him feel better. And that gave me all kinds of dopamine hits and made me feel this sense of purpose and effectiveness. So I would go out of my way to ensure his happiness. And that became kind of the entire goal of our relationship was, you know, me offering my regulation and my emotional well-being to his lack of regulation and emotional well-being. And from time to time, this kind of cyclical imbalance, we would meet in the middle and find this place of connection. However, It came at a pretty severe cost for me as I kind of developed this habitual pattern in our relationship of codependency, of needing to make him feel better 
in order to feel a sense of worthiness in the relationship. And he would respond with even deeper depression and even more emotional dysregulation. So this kind of cycle was endlessly depleting for me as I just had to continue to give myself over and over and over again to his emotions. And what would happen towards the end of our marriage and and throughout it really was anytime I would have my own emotional experience or, you know, maybe something would happen that wasn't even related to our marriage, something at work or, you know, something with a friend or with a family member, and I would be in a mood of some kind, you know, that wasn't prepared to be his therapist. And, I, you know, I'd having my own feelings, my own emotions, and any expression of that was considered really threatening to him. And, you know, me being sad or angry or upset or anxious was instantly received as, you know, something that he had done wrong. And it quickly escalated into an argument. He would get defensive because I was having an emotion. And then I would feel this utter despair and helplessness and feeling trapped, like I didn't have permission to have my own feelings without it being about him. And all of a sudden, we're having a big argument, and he's in despair again. And now I'm having to take care of him rather than tend to my own experience of big emotions that I really could have used some support for. This was very, very lonely. And being in a unhealthy relationship with someone that you are not experiencing emotional safety with is lonelier than being alone. And I experienced this quite a bit because I had to also, in addition to having to set myself aside to tend to him, that actually, because it happened so many times and over and over again, after a few years, this became this kind of chronic exiling of my own experience, really kind of a soul wound. Here I am having this experience of being human and having these feelings and having my own kind of authentic journey through the world. And it's being completely disregarded, not just by my partner, but by myself, because I was setting myself aside and disregarding my own experience in order to satisfy his needs. I want to be really straightforward as I share this story that I'm not coming at this story from a relationship of being a victim to an abuser. And this feels really important because as you've probably noticed in what I'm sharing, there is quite a bit of pain present for my ex. And that's not something that I want to just, you know, turn into a villain in this story, because I, I've done that. I, I've spent a lot of years doing that. And I've recognized that that's really not helpful. Hurt people hurt people. While my ex is certainly responsible for his own behavior, he was also being driven by the memories of deep wounding that live within his kind of relationship to being a human being in the world. I recognize that he never, I don't think he ever really meant to hurt me. I think that 
even though sometimes he even said that he wanted me to suffer and he wanted me to feel the pain that he felt, this really just came from a place of desperation to be seen and to be understood. You know, this comes back to this this practice of loving kindness and mindfulness. Knowing that blaming is not helpful, shaming ourselves or shaming others for their behaviors is not a solution. But what we can do and you know what I've I've tried to do in these 8 years since our divorce is I have tried to really cultivate within myself this capacity to recognize my impulse to lash out in response or to blame or to react and to increase this space between the stimulus and the response such that I'm in the driver's seat of what I choose to do when I respond. And this isn't easy, but when you take the time to slow down enough and be with the discomfort of the experience and notice the thoughts that are coming and going without necessarily getting wrapped up in them as truth, this does give the opportunity to choose a response that is kind as best you can. I have actually recently been slipping back into this enabler role because my ex really needs help. He's been in a phase of financial devastation. And then this kind of spirals into all of the other things, all of the ways that he's emotionally unwell. It, it turns into a depression. It turns into the only way for me to survive is to run away and not be a dad anymore. And it also turns into me being the reason for all of this unhappiness. And I get the brunt of the accusations and the blame. I recognize these as behaviors that are a symptom of his illness, just like sneezes are a symptom of a cold. This is something that we can do actually when, when someone else's behaviors are coming at us with some violence and to do what we can to just acknowledge that words, actions, behaviors are an attempt, they're an expression of a need. When someone is mentally ill or chronically dysregulated or struggling with depression, they may say things or do things that are really hurtful. And they are not necessarily representative of that, that person and, you know, the truth of what that person really wants in the world, but they are behaviors that are symptoms of the illness. So for example, these this kind of digital psychosis that my ex has is one of his symptoms. He goes into an entirely different personality when he's behind a keyboard or behind a screen, and what he writes to me and what he even voice notes that he sends to me are basically the the depression, the dysregulation speaking, rather than him speaking from a place of authenticity and regulation and groundedness. So if I think of these symptoms, text messages, intrusive thoughts, anxiety, uh, fearfulness, startling easily, or, or defensiveness, or reactivity, 
these are all symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And we can think of these as sneezes are a symptom of a cold. And one of the ways to work with this, once we recognize this, is we just say, bless you. <laughs> when, when someone lashes out at me with these kind of um, clearly dysregulated thoughts and accusations, I just, I try to pause and acknowledge that there is wounding behind this expression that's coming at me and an, and an unmet need. And if I can just kind of acknowledge it and touch into what's kind of underneath of the behavior, the beauty even of this need, the beauty of the need to be seen, the, the way that you know, as human beings, we long so much to be known, to be recognized, to have our experience validated, because we're, we're designed to connect. We're designed to be social creatures. We're not designed to hold our experience all by ourselves in our own little bubble without ever being met in our experience. So connecting with the beauty of this need underneath of these aggressive behaviors then gives me the opportunity to respond in whatever way I can manage with some kindness. And now for a number of years, I have been attempting to actually respond to these communications. And this gets me in trouble because I am an enabler. I have learned that the best thing to do in response to these kind of nonsensical or even psychotic episodes is to not engage. And this is really, really challenging for me because deep, deep, deep in my history, being the one who makes the peace, being the one who helps people feel better, being the one who's nourishing to others, has given me my sense of acceptance and belonging in the world. So there's there's this really core part of me that believes that if I can just say just the right thing or pay rent for another month for him or do whatever it is he's he's asking me to do so that things will finally be, or or sit and listen to him because he often reaches out with this like I really need to talk, we need to have a face to face. And then, you know, what ends up happening is hours and hours of being hijacked into this emotional turmoil where he's, he's so desperate to be understood and to be known and to be heard. And I try, but he just ends up getting really dysregulated and going into this place that is incredibly emotionally violent. So actually me agreeing to sit and listen is, is not helpful even though that's what he says he wants, choosing to participate in that actually just keeps the door open to this endless kind of codependent cycle of hurling abandonment and blame at each other. And we end up just down a rabbit hole, completely exhausted, worse off than when we started. So it's taken me many, many tries of trying to listen, trying to respond, trying to say just the right thing, to even be willing to see in myself the harm that I am causing 
with my intention to help him. And this is the kind of double-edged sword of enabling that is really, really difficult to stomach. (laughs) If I can be kind of strong enough to notice that as the enabler, I'm making it worse, then that gives me the opportunity to press pause and to choose a different response, which actually I've learned that the kindest response is no response. When you look at like a a website that might tell you how to navigate emotional abuse, one of the first things that you'll see is don't engage. Don't engage. And, And this reminds me of being a kid I had an adopted brother and sister from El Salvador and my they were both quite dysregulated but my brother especially all of a sudden he would feel threatened and he would explode and come after us quite aggressively and he was littler than us for for most of our childhood so I could defend myself against him he would stand outside the bedroom door screaming and yelling and shouting things and banging on the door and claiming he was going to hurt me I would get quite upset because I would get scared And my father, you know, he would say, just ignore him. Just ignore him. And I didn't know how to do this because I wanted to make it better. I would try. I would would just try to ignore him. And the funny thing was, when I did manage to ignore him, he would stop. Because it's pretty boring to just throw a temper tantrum outside of someone's door when they never answer. Eventually, you you just kind of burn yourself out. I can manage to not respond to my ex-husband's emails and text messages. Then eventually, no response is a response. And he does end up getting that message because I'm, I'm not responding. So it's it's he's not getting what he wants out of me anymore. So it's useless to try to even send the emails or send the text messages. Now, fortunately, we have these smart devices and email filters and all kinds of ways that we can help ourselves set these boundaries. Because, you know, even though I might have the intention to not respond or not engage with the dynamic, we have a child together. So what I've tried to do is set his text messages to do not disturb so I don't get notifications on my phone and I have to kind of intentionally look at them and check them. I have changed the uh, appearance of of what shows up on on my home screen when I do get a message so that I'm not seeing the entire text of the response, I I have to actually click into the message to be able to see what it says. Because what was happening was I would just get a glimpse of what was on there and it would send me into this like panic because I could already tell from the first couple of words that were showing up that it was another round of accusations and hostility. But what was also happening was, you know, when he would have our daughter or we would need to figure out some logistics I was actually having to go into that text chain much more often and and check it and I was kind of getting hooked in. So, you know, do not disturb is is helpful, but I did just recently our daughter is 10, so uh we decided that she is actually finally 
old enough with some parental controls to have her own communication device. So she now has a way to communicate with her father. And I've finally been able to just completely block his number. So I'm not available anymore to receive text messages from him. I have him separated out actually in another contact for email. So I have his like email address is one contact and his phone number is another contact so that I can filter those separately because for a while we were able to just use email as a way of communicating logistics, knowing that text messaging was quite triggering. Uh, we, we switched to, you know, email like, oh, I'm, this is a date that we need to figure something out for and put it on the calendar, things like that. But over the past year or so, I'd say even email has become this kind of outlet where he'll send me these very long, just wanted to share kind of these thoughts that I'm having or these feelings that I'm having. As I would read, as the page would go on, it would really kind of devolve back into this, you know, narrative of me being the entire reason for his unhappiness and all these things that I did to him by divorcing him. And I could tell uh, by the many typos or the ways that his sentences didn't make sense that he was writing these from a place of extreme dysregulation and not being in his right mind. I figured out on my email inbox how to actually filter these into a smart mailbox which means they don't appear on my phone. I can't see them unless I actually intentionally go into the smart mailbox. The only thing that I see, it's kind of buried way down there too on my on my email platform. The only thing I see is a little uh, dot if I've got a new message from him. Even that sometimes is, is quite triggering. You know, I don't, uh, I, I see that little dot and actually even now just talking about it, I can feel the pit in my stomach that forms when I know there's a communication from him because there's there's never a time when it's been positive or something that's helpful to our relationship. So now those are really tucked away so that I don't have to look at them. And that's also actually been really helpful this way that I have said, no, I am not participating in this anymore. And giving myself these kind of tools, these this structure around protecting my right to my own peace and emotional safety by not being available to receive violent communications. There's a lot of different feelings actually that happen. One is extreme relief and just this serenity of knowing that I'm not going to be invaded in my workday, in my creative space, in my bedtime routine, all of these times when I would just check my phone or my email kind of randomly and find that I had another message. So knowing that I have really put some fierce boundaries in place around what I'm not available for is empowering to me because now I do feel this sense of protection that I am, you know, really not vulnerable anymore to being hijacked or thrown by these communications. 
This is also just my commitment as an adoptee because I grew up not knowing my birth mother and my adoptive mother. She was not super available to us. I never had a close relationship with her. So, you know, my whole life, all I've really ever wanted was to be the mom I didn't get to have. So this means being available to her no matter what. And I will always take my daughter. And I consider myself a single mom, even though her dad is in the picture, because I can't really count on him and I can't rely on him. So, you know, I'm sort of prepared at any point for him to disappear from the picture and and to have to take over completely. So this is this is something that I've just acknowledged is part of being a mom is this commitment to never going away. And, you know, my mom, my birth mom, she did go away. And she did it because she had to. And that's a story for another episode. But if I can do anything in the world to break the cycle of generational trauma and abandonment and this kind of avoidant, anxious attachment that I've dealt with throughout my adult life, it is to give my daughter a securely attached relationship with me so that she can trust that I will be available to her no matter what. And so this is the gift that I give to her. This is my offering, not just to her, but also to future generations, because we know, and if you listen to the last episode, we know from research that kids who have a secure attachment with at least one of their primary caregivers, they are more likely to grow up to experience securely attached relationships as an adult. I'd like to share some of the specific strategies that you can use to set some boundaries. If you're experiencing emotional abuse or even just this kind of needing to compromise yourself in order to meet the emotional needs of someone else, or if you're enabling someone else's depression or mental illness, these are some things that you can do to really give yourself permission to have your own experience, to come home to yourself, and to start to divert some of that energy that has been going towards the emotional well-being of others back to yourself so that you're prioritizing your own well-being. You may have heard the phrase, you can't pour from an empty cup, and this is certainly true, but mostly I apply this to our emotional well-being. If we have developed this priority of tending to our own well-being first, then we can show up in relationship to others from a place of being really resourced, not easily knocked off balance, not pulled into defensiveness or these relational dynamics that can so quickly go down into the rabbit hole and cause us great distress. So really taking the time intentionally, getting familiar with your own experience and starting to investigate 
how can I best take care of myself given what's arising? So there's lots of layers here to how we might spend intentional time developing this kind of literacy around our own experience. There's there's different kinds of literacy. So we've got our mental literacy, just kind of being familiar with what's going on in our mind and how our thoughts work. We've got physical literacy, this awareness of what we're holding in our bodies, of where our pain points are, where our tension is, and how we're holding ourselves in different spaces. You might hold yourself differently when you're around a certain person, or you might also have some areas of the body where you're kind of chronically bracing for an attack or, or tensing or preparing to fight or flee. So, you know, getting to know the way that your body is reacting to different experiences is also really important. Then there's, of course, emotional literacy, even being able to understand what we're feeling when we're feeling it. The opportunity here is to kind of avoid going into thinking about our feelings and trying to figure out why we feel a certain way and actually to just allow ourselves to feel what we feel. When we do this, this is really important. When we allow ourselves to feel what we feel, we are kind of healing these wounds of belonging because we're giving ourselves permission to have the feelings that we have. We're welcoming our own experience. One of the ways that we can do this is actually to physically feel what we're feeling in the moment that we're feeling it rather than think what we're feeling. So this might involve just, you know, you might be like, wow, I'm feeling emotional. What in the heck is going on? And then shifting attention down into your body and out of your thoughts, maybe identifying the specific physical sensations that are accompanying this emotion. So like if we take anxiety, for example, you might have a, a slightly different felt sense of anxiety than I do. But in general, for me, anxiety involves kind of a clenching of my stomach, maybe a quickening of my breath, a tightening of my chest. A lot of times I feel some pulsing in my face or this sense of bracing in my shoulders or, or movement in my hands or legs. And, and so I, I notice these sensations and I say, wow, okay, man, my stomach is quivering. or My heart is just aching. Or I'm feeling all of this tightening across my shoulders, my back. Let me just be with this for a minute and giving yourself this kind of opportunity to feel what you feel in your body. This is huge. There is some research around this actually being a really effective strategy for regulating your emotion. They say that if the uh, emotion lasts for more than 90 seconds in your awareness, it's because we're re-triggering it with our thoughts. So this is a, might be a big pill to swallow, but it really, next time you're having, you know, kind of a, a big rush of emotion or a wave of emotion, see if you can just practice this. Just bring your attention down into your body and notice the physical sensations that accompany the emotion and just name them. And you don't have to figure out why you're feeling the way you're feeling or who caused you to feel this way or what happened. 
leading up to this feeling, just letting it be a completely felt experience outside of this kind of cognitive figuring out. So feel your feelings rather than think your feelings. That's that's number one. The next thing I want to share with you is I want to invite you to get really clear in your boundary setting. So this might mean like making a list. You might even make a little T-chart on one side. You know, you can write what I'm available for. And on the other side, you can write what I'm not available for. And this is even really good preparation for some, maybe a nonviolent communication with a person that you're needing to set a boundary with. And this can be used in workplaces or in personal relationships. So once you have this kind of list fleshed out of what you're available for and what you're not available for, this can be a really great kind of uh, touchstone for you when you find yourself compromising your boundaries or feeling invaded or violated, you can refer back to this list and start to look at, okay, so these things that I'm not available for, how can I set some clear expectations for others around what I'm not available for so that they are aware that I'm not available for it? I did do this with my ex-husband recently around blocking his text messages and not reading his emails. And I did communicate with you know, kind of neutrality and clarity that I would no longer be receiving or responding to any digital communications. So once you're pretty clear about what you're willing to take in and what you're not willing to take in, this then gives you the opportunity to come back again to this question, how can I best take care of myself given what's arising? So knowing what I'm not willing to participate in, how can I take care of myself? How can I set some expectations both for myself and be clear with my expectations of others so that they are aware of this boundary that I'm setting. Finally, the third thing I'd like to offer in terms of setting boundaries is around physical literacy. Getting to know your own experience is really challenging, especially if you are a survivor of assault. You have learned that your body maybe isn't a safe place to pay attention. And I want to acknowledge the wounding here and to give you permission to go really, really slow in this returning home to your own experience of belonging in your body. So in a mindfulness training program, you'd be invited to do kind of a longer body scan practice, or there's also some trauma-informed yoga offerings, which invite you to kind of somatically experience what you're experiencing in your body in an environment of support and safety. And I, I encourage you to check some of these things out, but also to start with something really manageable. So paying attention to your entire body or doing a a 30-minute body scan may be quite overwhelming if you have a long history of an unsafe relationship with being in your body. You might just start with something like the sensations in your hands. So you might even just now notice, you know, what sensations are present in your hands. You might feel the weight of your hands resting on whatever surface they're resting on. You might be able to notice the temperature 
of your hands, maybe the shape of your hands. You might notice the space in between your fingers. You can intentionally pick up an object and feel it with your hands. So you might have a an object from nature, such as a stone or a pine cone, or even just a, a leaf that you pick off of a tree. And any time that you spend just giving yourself permission to have the experience of sensation in your body, just feeling the physical sensations of this leaf or this stone or the weight of your hands resting on your legs, giving yourself these anchors, just small places in the body where you can experience some sense of safety, taking up residency in that part of the body. So the hands and the feet are two places that I, I recommend starting with if you have a challenging experience of, of safety in your body. The final thing I want to offer about boundaries and this kind of right to reclaim yourself is just to reiterate that none of this is your fault. There is absolutely nothing that you did that means that you deserve abuse. Blaming is never helpful, whether it's blaming ourselves or blaming others. And in the case of blaming ourselves, you are not responsible for someone else's behavior, no matter what you did or said or believe. Each of us makes our own choices, and we cannot make someone else act or behave in a certain way. So if you believe healing is possible, this is a really big step in the right direction. The Welcome You podcast is a production of Safe Within Wellness, an organization dedicated to supporting survivors of complex and systemic trauma in healing their wounds of belonging and thriving in relationship to themselves. Please help us keep our content ad-free and accessible to all by donating at safewithinwellness.com. Your presence and support So that means that it enough. is time for Get Down and Dirty with Dr. Cindy where you can call in with your questions and challenges, and I'll do what I can to offer some mindfulness-based practices and therapeutic skills that you can apply in response to what you're facing. You can call 719-759-9471 and leave an up to three minute voicemail sharing your story. And I encourage you to do this even if you aren't sure whether your story is relevant to anyone else because one of the tendencies of survivors of relational trauma and emotional abuse is to minimize their story and to believe that they're the only one experiencing this. The Buddhists say, no mud, no lotus. And this is kind of a metaphor for how when we are willing to get our hands dirty or to explore these areas of difficulty, then we have this opportunity to turn poison into medicine and to blossom. So let's go ahead and dive into the muck with today's caller. Hi, Dr. Cindy. So I'm calling because my friend just came up for the weekend and they actually surprised me, so I didn't know they were coming. But this past year, I've been doing a lot of work on myself and I've 
perhaps changed quite a bit, but I am finally happy. And I feel so proud of how far I've come. And yet when I started telling them these things, that I felt beautiful and and happy and healthy for the first time, they started calling me selfish and they said that I was an asshole and that they were worried that I was becoming a narcissist and that I didn't care about anyone else. And so I'm calling you today because I really want advice because this person is very important to me. And yet I never imagined that I would be someone with, you know, a friend who I thought really cared about me. And then now I'm just so confused. I'm just so confused because I I can't go back to being small. I can't go back to being small. And I don't want to lose the friendship. So any advice you can give, please and thank you. So first of all, I just want to thank you for sharing and honor the difficulty required to do the kind of deep work you've done that has changed you so much that it's actually threatening to others in your life who have not done the work. This kind of self-healing, healing your relationship to yourself and really allowing yourself to step into the fullness of who you are is a big leap. And I think you should be very proud of that step that you've taken towards welcoming yourself to belong in the body that you're in. I also hear in what you're sharing, you know, this deep confusion uh, and this kind of miss in having done this powerful healing work to come home to yourself and learning to welcome yourself and the fullness of yourself and then not having it be received in a relationship that means a lot to you. This is painful because it's a place where you might have once felt seen and known and understood And now you've had this transformative experience where that's no longer happening. And so I just want to kind of touch the grief there and the loss there. And I appreciate your question around, you know, wanting to preserve the friendship and the relationship. And I want to also encourage you to believe that this is possible. The interesting thing that jumps out is that this person, um, you know, thinks you're becoming a narcissist, which to me is always kind of a red flag that identifies someone who is is kind of threatened by another person's self-love because they don't have that self-love for themselves. And they don't have the kind of structures in place to understand that self-love, this radical act of caring for ourselves is not actually selfish, but that it is an offering to the world in general, that by giving ourselves permission to deeply honor and acknowledge and love the real authentic being that we are, we are then inviting that authentic being to, to be present in the world. And so many of us 
have had to be small, have had to hide these pieces of ourselves in order to belong. And, and kind of culturally, we have adopted this kind of pervasive mindset that, you know, many parts of our human experience are not actually really welcome in public. Uh, like if we're going to have an ugly cry or we might have emotions that are not really appropriate for uh, a workplace or even in a friendship, we might be told that we are too much for others. If we are frequently, you know, exploring more freely this real depth of human experience. So, you know, just to kind of see the other side of the coin, maybe just to shift perspective a little bit to where this person is coming from and, and to understand that they have not done this work that you've done and they just don't have the, the mental capacity, the mental fitness or the emotional intelligence to be able to comprehend your experience. It makes sense that you still want to share it. <laughs> and this is a really kind of tricky place as somebody who has taken these steps down the path of awakening. Once we sort of see, we can't unsee. And yet there are so many around us who are still walking around blind. Sometimes people that we deeply, deeply care about. So we're all at a different place on our journey. And we can't push people or force them to rush uh, or to plow ahead to a part of the journey that we've completed just because we know how much it could benefit them or, or how much we wish they could meet us where we are. So sometimes people just aren't ready to hold the magnitude of our self-discovery and it can be threatening to them because it can be very destabilizing to consider having to go on this kind of a journey. This actually comes back to some of these boundary setting practices. I hear you say you can't go back to being small and nor should you. Absolutely don't compromise that. You just keep giving yourself permission to take up all the space in the world that you want to take up and don't feel like you need to fit into anybody else's definition of who you're supposed to be. You've moved past that point and you never have to go back. You can start to practice this being the gatekeeper of not just what you're available for and what you're not available for, but being the gatekeeper around what you share. Sometimes these experiences of homecoming or these, these journeys of self-discovery, they have this kind of quality of the sacred. And when we share them without discernment or maybe even carelessly hoping to be seen and understood, sometimes that can actually kind of distill the depth of our experience or the sacredness of our experience, maybe even compromise the worthiness of our journey. Give yourself permission to maybe slow down a little bit and notice your impulse to want to shout to the world this experience of homecoming to yourself. And also know that you get to be discerning and be in control of when and how you share that. 
as you step into sharing that journey, it may be one that many people, even those you have a close relationship with, may not have capacity to hold. So the final piece, I'll I'll just come back to this narcissist comment and reiterate that, you know, not everything that others think is true. These can just be kind of thoughts that are coming from a place of less education than you. It is often perceived as selfish when we start to prioritize our own well-being. And this doesn't mean that we need to break off relationships with people who are threatened by our commitment to ourselves. But what we can do is just stay fiercely committed, regardless of what others think or how they feel or what they say. And we don't have to convince them. We don't have to convince them that caring for ourselves is worthwhile. They will come to that realization in their own time, probably simply by watching you. And you can kind of model this way of really prioritizing yourself in such a way that it's not, you know, aggressive or violent. I mean, that's the thing about a narcissist is is a narcissist is actually going to feed off of your energy, your positive energy. So, you know, they're going to feel validated by zapping that energy and pulling it towards them, making themselves the focus. It doesn't sound like that's what you're sharing. It sounds like, you know, you're sharing this kind of story of of self-discovery that just can't be understood by this person who has not been through a journey. So they just can't relate to what you're sharing as, as beautiful as it is. And I would just invite you, maybe even make that list with the, with this particular friend in mind of what you're available for and what you're not available for. So that if this relationship starts to tip into the landscape of toxic, where this person's uh, dialogue or requirements of you to be different become hostile, become aggressive, become something that makes you compromise yourself in order to find a sense of belonging. So take some time to get really clear around what you're available for and what you're not available for. It doesn't mean that, you know, just because this friend hasn't had an experience like yours that they have to be exiled from your life. It just means you may pull back a little bit when you get into this territory around sharing these kind of soul journey experiences. Nonviolent communication is a powerful resource. If you want to have a real meaningful conversation with this person around how you're feeling, there are some really valuable kind of structures that you can use to help frame that discussion in such a way that it isn't, hopefully is not threatening to this person. So I'm going to recommend the book, Say What You Mean by an author named Oren J. Sofer. 
And this is a kind of mindful approach to nonviolent communication. And he brings together some of the principles of Buddhism with Marshall Rosenberg's NVC program and gives some really solid tools and language for connecting around really difficult experiences in a way that really touches the heart of what matters. And I would invite you to use that book. And he's also got some training courses online as, as a resource. So thank you so much for calling in. I would like to invite anyone who's listening right now who is experiencing any kind of challenge or relational struggle or just a question that you have around your relationship to yourself to please go ahead and give me a call. I love receiving your questions and I look forward to welcoming you again next time you find your way to the Welcome You podcast. The Welcome You podcast is a production of Safe Within Wellness, an organization dedicated to supporting survivors of complex and systemic trauma in healing their wounds of belonging and thriving in relationship to themselves. Please help us keep our content ad-free and accessible to all by donating at safewithinwellness.com. Your presence and support matter more than you know.